But it's just airplanes, so it's not, it's it's, not really no this is This is the best seat now. It's, it's got a runway in the front yard. <laughs> you know what I always wondered, David? I always wondered how come World War I fighters, when they shot off the machine gun, it didn't, like, cut off the propeller. That's kind of a mystery, a mysterious uh, piece of technology. A mystery, a mystery. We may have named the episode really earlier. A mystery. A mystery. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's the mis? How 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 do you explain the mystery, David? Why does it not? I actually know the answer to this. I have to tell because I'm going to get email. I know. All right. I know the answer to this. But it is interesting. How is it that the the propeller doesn't get shot off by the uh, by the machine gun bullets? One of those amazing applications of analog technology called a mechanical interrupter. Uh huh. Yeah. Bulletus interruptus. Wait a second. Mechanical interrupter. I think I dated her. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Um, yeah. You know, it's interesting you should put it that So you call it an interrupter. Um, see, I've always thought of it the other way around. I've always thought of it is that. The pro- propeller is the thing that's actually pulling the trigger on the gun, okay? And it's the pilot who is releasing the interlock, if you will. Does that make sense? Okay? So the propeller tries to pull the trigger every single time the propeller spins around, all right? And, but there's an interlock on the stick or whatever, wherever the control is for the pilot. And by pressing that interlock, it allows the trigger to be fired by the propeller well it's almost exact opposite the go ahead the 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 pilot has the firing control he pulls the trigger yes uh which was usually like a motorcycle lever on a on the control stick Uh uh-huh uh and there's a rotating cam uh that turns at the same speed at the prop and a little bump on that rotating disc interrupts the mechanism between the firing control and the machine gun so that it stops the firing momentarily, you know, secondarily, briefly. And then as it rotates past and the interlock passes, then the firing mechanism is complete again and you get more bullets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Makes sense. And then always... the video that we got here doesn't really go into the detail to show us how that worked, but it shows it shows it how it worked, but not the actual mechanism. Mm-hmm. You can see that in the Air and Space Museum. Yeah, there ought to be a, we ought to be able to build a device. That, I'm sorry, there's a joke about this podcast and interrupting us every time. I don't know something turns. It, I can't quite work it out. I, I'm as I become more and more of a hardware person. Um, I am continually amazed by the cleverness of even mechanics back in those days uh the some of the mechanisms that you see like i I go to the um there's a country fair up here every year in uh, deerfield new hampshire um you know your basic uh, agricultural fair and and there are all these exhibits of old farm equipment and you know or old old uh, uh you know internal combustion engines and uh and it's fascinating to look at them because they're they're actually very very clever machines um it always impresses me. Yeah, we uh, had, uh, back where I grew up in southern Indiana, one of the more rural towns had an annual festival where they gathered all these steam-powered engines. Mm-hmm. 
and the engines ran other machines. The engines didn't move. Right. They ran other machines with these big, long leather belts. And the big, long leather belt always had a twist on one side. Right. So that as it rotated, it was continuously flipping sides so that both sides wore evenly. Yeah. See? Uh, but they would use this to run thrashing machines and uh, uh, stuff to separate grain and uh, to power lifts to raise uh uh, grain up to elevator tops, and the machine, the engine was mobile, but the devices that it uh, drove had to be moved to where it was to work. So they would move that engine where they needed it, and then move the accessory. It's kind of like interchanging accessories on a uh, on a uh, leaf blower or something, where you can make it suck with one setting, blow with something else, okay. turn it into a weed whacker with something else. Uh huh. Yeah. And it was all pretty damn clever, but all steam powered. Yes. This is just a uh, an application of uh, some technology that was used in machine shops to bring tools back and then re-engage them in uh, lathes and milling, mach- milling machines. And they said, hey, we could put this in between the firing mechanism and the uh, engine so that it interrupted the machine gun briefly so the prop blade to go by without shooting off the propeller yeah and 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 you got to like you got to be sympathetic to the first pilot who discovered that they needed such a device it's like, <laughs> yeah. It's like, hey, listen, it'll miss the blade. It won't be a problem. You know, so how long is the blade blocking it? It's not a problem. You know, there, there was yeah. there was a technology at one point where they had metal deflectors. Oh, yeah, that's the, right. On, yeah. on the wooden on the wooden prop blades, I don't know how well that worked. Well, yeah, okay. And and now that you mention it, I'm I'm not joking. The the wasn't there a thing where the bullets bounced back and killed a pilot or something like that? I I don't know. Maybe. <sighs> That's the myth. Yeah, um, I don't know. I never saw you know uh, a specific like. Uh, you know, Lieutenant Aviator so and so was killed by a ricochet from his own gun. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that that was the myth behind the uh, metal deflectors. Uh, I think it kind of tended to throw the props out of balance eventually. I would think. I would think. Jeb, you own two airplanes that are at somewhat ends of the spectrum in terms of of I don't know, you know, technology maybe. Neither one of them has a machine gun. <laughs> and, and I know that all of your neighbors are very, very grateful for that. Um, what uh, Have you discovered as you explore and learn the champ that uh, any particular piece of, of engineering that's kind of like different but clever? or what, What's your experience so far in that regard? Um, not really. I, it's, it's interesting. Um, the fuel gauge, uh, uh, the champ's fuel gauge, for example... Um, which is, uh, let's back up. The, the, the main fuel tank for this particular champ, or most champs, is uh, mounted um, uh, above the, uh, um, uh, it's mounted on top of the cowling between the engine and the windshield. Okay. okay. I'm not really, I'm not really clear on whether, it, it's got to be behind the firewall in the, in the, uh, in the occupant's area, in the cabin. So, um... The fuel gauge is a mechanical device that um, is basically a float, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it, it measures the, the level of fluid in the tank. Right. Um, it's taken basically from a Model A Ford. Okay. 
you asked for something interesting. Yes, I know. It is interesting. It, it, yes. Well, it, it, it doesn't afloat have a wire that comes yeah. through the cap. And, and it, it goes the, both the wire ways. Is what you see. Yeah, it goes both ways. I've seen some champs with, with a solid fuel cap. Um, the, my champ uh, has a, um, a hole in the top of the, uh, of the fuel cap. A wire is floated uh, through that. Um, and uh, at the bottom of the wire is um, a float. The top of the wire is just a bin, so it doesn't fall all the way through when the tank's empty. Um, but you can tell um, the fuel level in the tank um, by how high out of the tank that little piece of wire uh, extends. Uh, if it's full, it, it extends very far. If it's low, it, it, it's very close to the, to the cap. Um, mm. The... Uh, um, the Model A fuel gauge is it works on basically the same principle. It's a float type device. Um, as it rises or falls, it's connected to a pivot, and on the uh, uh, um, the short side, if you will, of the pivot, um, there's a uh, a dial. Um, uh, uh, measurements are marked on this this uh, I don't know maybe semicircular uh, uh, piece of sheet metal. And uh, the marks are like, you know, full, three-quarter, one-half, one-quarter, and zero. And uh, it's fairly accurate, all things considered. Uh, it's, it's really rather cool. It's, it's just another, you know, uh, little uh, um, trick that mm. uh, the engineers use to uh, put a fuel gauge in the airplane. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the champs that I've uh, uh, gotten time in, uh, the, the wire was painted green on the lower half and then the next quarter of the wire was painted yellow and then the upper quarter of the wire was painted red mm -hmm. and i think that i don't know if that was a factory spec or an after mm -hmm. market or, but it, it kind of got over the point to you that when you get down to the red part you need to be looking for a place to top off and yeah. get back into the it's, green it's time it's time the red zone yeah the red yeah. zone yeah yeah, yeah. um you would think that the the length of the wire alone would be enough of a tell, but color coding it's certainly an option. Yeah, but I wouldn't necessarily assume. I mean, I suppose if you really knew the airplane, you you would recognize how much of the wire you know exists and is showing and whatnot. But you know, having an indicator is a good thing. You know, we yeah. put, we put arcs on the on the uh, airspeed indicator, even though we know the speeds, right? I mean, I don't know. Um, well, and there's uh, new airplanes delivered even today, and a lot of kit airplanes that still rely on a uh, clear plastic tube as a exactly. sight gauge. Exactly right. 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 Yeah. The, you uh, know, it's low tech, but it's accurate. It works. Uh, no moving parts. Uh, uh, if I remember right, uh, Aviat Huskies still use sight gauges in the wing roots. Uh-huh. And there's markings on the uh, rib next to it that, that tell you how much is in there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They were clever back in those days. Clever. Yeah. Clever. Clever, clever. even today. Even today. <laughs> hey, welcome, folks, to Uncontrolled Airspace, the general aviation podcast. I'm Jack Hodgson coming to you from high atop lookout point in uh, 
in uh, it's it's a little chilly here, Nottingham, New Hampshire. Um, yeah, I'm so, so, I'm, I'm so so sorry to hear. That. I know, I know. I'm not going to talk to you for a few minutes, um, David. <laughs> <laughs> David, David, why, understands. Why, why should today be different from any <laughs> yeah, other? I know. Thing. David understands me. David, you've had a little bit of cold snap there, and uh, one of my, I'm talking to my two good friends here. That's right. Oops, I almost forgot. I was supposed to be introducing you. Um, uh, one of my good friends here uh, is uh, in my in the virtual hangar. Our virtual hangar is uh, from uh, the air capital of the world, Wichita, Kansas. David Higdon. Hi, David. How you? doing doing great doing great so it's gotten uh, cold oh, out there recently huh oh yeah i haven't done anything in a week without at least uh, two extra layers or at least nothing outside without two extra layers uh but we got a heat wave coming it's supposed to uh get to the 40s today and the 50s tomorrow and yeah, i'm jealous it encouraged me to get out and do the last of the yard work i, I need to do before i disappear for the holiday it was only this morning, I, even up to yesterday, last evening when I went out to have dinner with some family members, um, I was still in denial and wearing my hoodie sweater, even though it was like, you know, in the 20s as I was wandering around. Even in the afternoon, it was in the 20s, so it was cold. Um, and uh, it's not getting warm here anytime soon, but I'm going to San Diego tomorrow, so I don't care. Um, Oh, yeah. Don't forget the sunscreen. At least for six days, I don't care. Then I'm going to come back and it's going to be cold and wintry again. And my other good friend here in the virtual hangar is uh, from uh, uh, also oh so chilly somewhere near Sarasota, Florida, <laughs> Jeb Burnside. How you doing, Jeb? I'm doing well. It's I understand relative. it's been chilly there recently, right? It's a, it's actually fairly relative. Um, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, I, I know that comes as a shock. Um it should be close to 80 today. Uh, it's in the 60s now. Oh, guys, how do you I stand know. it? I, it's, it? Sacrifices must be made. <laughs> yeah. Drink drink plenty of water and don't let it freeze is the, is the punchline. <laughs> yeah. When's the last time the water on your deck, on your on your lanai there, froze? I can't even... You probably well, um, you obviously do get frosts every now and then, but I bet the water doesn't some, freeze. Someone may have spilled a cocktail. Yeah. Uh, there you go. And the ice cubes, right. And the ice cubes, you know, didn't melt quickly. I know, I know. Oh, no, another tragic frozen margarita accident. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on in the aviation world? We, uh, a tragedy down in uh, Colombia in South America yeah. Um, yeah. with this uh, passenger plane, uh, apparently a charter of some sort, um, um, but called Lamia or Lamia, Lamia Flight uh, 2933. Um, it, it crashed near... Med, Med, is it Medellin, uh, Colombia? Um, mm-hmm. That's that's the word. With uh, with uh, um, you know a, a pretty large loss of life. The part that jumps out at me on this one was, and this story is from about a week ago. And Jeb or David, I don't know if you guys are having any more recent information here, but early reports um, quoted the pilot, um, you know, prior to the impact, obviously um, reporting. "Quote unquote, the plane is in total electrical failure and without fuel, and and that's just a mind bender to me. That a uh, that a uh, you know, basically an airliner could run out of gas. Do you have any thoughts on this? Well, I read the same stuff, and part of the information that came early on in this that what disturbed me most was." that the uh, air traffic controller that the, the uh, pilot was talking to and asking for expedited handling to the airport uh, was putting him off because another airplane was having a mechanical emergency. And 
you know, I not I don't know how you prioritize that if you're if you're a uh, controller. Yeah. You got somebody that's still able to fly with a mechanical emergency versus somebody that's out of fuel, and it's going to be coming down one way or the other. I know. And, you know, uh, uh, it, it's and and do they fly by the same rules and and procedures because you know in my mind you don't ask the controller for to land in this situation you tell the controller you're gonna land uh, i don't know maybe that's too simplistic jeb you're kind of quiet yeah uh, a couple of things one it's not clear to me which which occurred first the uh, the electrical failure or the fuel uh, starvation it's true the two don't uh, seem to go together do they well it, they they do if you if you run out of fuel first and the engines aren't turning and, and the they aren't making electrical power right um, so you know which which happened first here is at least as far as my information is concerned remains to be seen um, secondly, uh, yeah, um, uh, you, you have to assert yourself. There have been several instances, um, a couple of them notably involving, uh, uh, South American operations, uh, where the crews saw that they were running out of gas, running out of fuel and didn't really tell anybody or didn't really communicate that fact forcefully enough to air traffic control. The, uh, the one that stands out happened up in up, uh, near Kennedy back, uh, I want to say in the 70s, 707, um, and made a pass at the airport, had to miss the approach, and ran out of gas, ran out of fuel um, uh, on the go-around and crashed. Um, and if you look at the, the air traffic control transcripts, um, the crew knew, I mean, the, the cockpit voice recorder and the ATC transcripts, the crew knew that they were running out of fuel that they had very little fuel remaining, but they never communicated that to ATC. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how do you fix that? I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's something, I don't know if there's some cultural thing going on. Uh, I, I just don't know. Yeah. But uh, um, uh, anytime that you're experiencing what you consider to be a, uh, an emergency, you know, th- that's one of the keys. You know, the emergencies are in the eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. Any time someone, you know, as a pilot, is experiencing an emergency, um, they have every reason to sound off and request priority handling. If it's not allowed, if it's not given, you go ahead and exercise your command authority as pilot in command, and you do whatever you need to do uh, yeah. uh, to, to, to meet that emergency. Worry about uh, paperwork, if any, uh, later. True. I mean, that's the way I would view it, I yeah. think. I'd like yeah. to think that's the way I would view it um, in that kind of a high-stress situation, but the, I never know. The, the, the situation with this uh, this particular um, uh, crash, again, there's a lot of investigation uh, that needs to be done. There's a lot of uh, uh, things that's, that seem to be coming out, but it's, it's not really definitive at this point. It's still fairly soon after the event. Um, but it does seem that... Um, um, there were some questions regarding um, maybe the certification of the operator, uh, the uh, ability of the operator to to make this trip. There was also something I saw or heard where um, the flight had originally been planned to stop for fuel en route, uh, but did not, oh, uh, with okay. the presumption that they had enough fuel to make the destination. And we all know how that came out. Yeah, yeah. And for those of you that may not be familiar with the the, the, the aircraft type, yeah, uh, the, the the RJ eighty five is a newer version 
of what in the 80s was a really popular four-engineer plane from British Aerospace called the BAE-146. I know. I just looked that up and discovered that. This was one of my favorite airliners. Back in the – it wasn't the 80s. It was. It would have been the – when would it have been? It would have been the early 90s. Um, I had occasion to do a series of jobs um, where I traveled pretty regularly from San Jose down to uh, Orange County uh, uh, near near Los Angeles. And uh, and at the time, the operator, who I don't remember what, who it was, um, was using these BAE-146s. And, uh, oh, really, yeah. They're a really, really like nice airplane. Uh, I really like them. Uh, it, not, you know, I mean... And and you know here's a funny coincidence it's a high wing airliner not very common um, so yeah, yeah wasn't so, P, wasn't PSA flying those in the West Coast back in the day yeah I, yeah, I believe so perhaps I believe they've so. almost completely disappeared in the U S now I I don't think I yeah because the four engines is just they just suck too much fuel yeah. too much maintenance you know for for you can get the same performance these days easily with an older RJ and a newer RJ just run circles around it yeah. Well, and at one point, um, British Aerospace uh, or one of its successors, BAE Systems or Avro International, I forget, was working on a twin-engine version that used basically the same airfoil and, and fuselage uh, in an attempt to keep the type alive with more fuel-efficient, uh, higher-power engines. But what the 146 and the R- Avro RJ are noteworthy <laughs> for is their extremely short runway performance. Uh, the 146 was one of the first airplanes uh, approved to fly into London City Airport, which is in the Docklands area, and at the time was only a 3,000-foot runway. Really? Wow. And wow. you had to be able to do a five-degree, I believe it was, a five-degree approach slope, which is steeper than what your standard airliner does, mm-hmm. and uh, also had to meet a noise standard, and that was the other real yeah. Uh, yeah. appeal of the 146. For a big four-engine airplane with a really wide oval-shaped fuselage, it was really quiet. Mm -hmm. Uh, And as Jeb said, with four engines, not the most fuel-efficient in the world. But it got a lot of mileage as a regional uh, hauler here in the States before subsequent twin-engine airplanes with... uh, uh, not quite the same short field, uh, but better seat mile cost, uh, kind of pushed it out of the market. Yeah. Yeah. So sad situation down in Columbia. Yes, it is. Not to toot our horn or to jinx anything, but Jeb, you call our attention to a somewhat remarkable safety record here in the States. Yeah. Um, and this comes courtesy of Patrick Smith, um, uh, an uh, uh, aviation airline blogger uh, um, and uh, uh, columnist. Um, the last crash involving a major carrier, uh, by which I mean, you know, American Delta United um, uh, Southwest, um, occurred uh, in 2001, November 12, 2001. That was the American Airlines Airbus that lost its vertical stabilizer uh, coming out of. Uh, uh, I think Kennedy or LaGuardia. Well, Kennedy or LaGuardia. Um, Kennedy. Kennedy. Okay. Um, and uh, again, that was a, a major event. It was a major crash. That was the last one involving so, those four carriers and, and a large, uh, large aircraft in the United States. Uh, okay. 
So you're not so it's, it's been you're, it's you're been fifteen regionals, right? Like, not counting regionals. Talking about, for example, um, the RJ icing crash in what was it, Buffalo or something like that is is within the. That place. wasn't an RJ. That was a uh, um, dash A to Q four hundred okay, something like correct. that. I, yeah, I yeah. Stand corrected, but uh, uh, which, which is airline. which is the, is kind of the point. Yeah. Um, uh, majors versus regionals. The flip side of which is there's been damn few regional crashes lately too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Knock on wood. Good job, everybody. But yeah, yeah. well, the, it's, the last it's quite quite amazing though when you think about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the last crash that we had in the U.S. Uh, with a major carrier was an overseas carrier that uh, wasn't that in San Francisco. That was uh, that, I think Japan Airlines or or, or uh, All Nippon or something. Uh, yeah, that came up short with a triple seven at SFO. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Southwest had a o- runway overrun accident in two thousand five at uh, uh-huh. uh, Midway Airport in Chicago, and there was one fatality, but that was a young boy in a car out on the street because the seven thirty seven slid completely through the uh, overrun barriers and the fence line and out into a Chicago street. So it, it's not that the majors haven't had any incidents, but yeah. they haven't had any biggies like we just saw down in Columbia. Yeah, uh, one other you know large aircraft accident occurred in the U.S., and that was in Birmingham a few years ago where a, a UPS Airbus uh, also came up short. Um Trying to land in Birmingham, but That's that right. was a, that was a cargo operation. Mm-hmm. That was not a it was not a scheduled passenger operation. Yeah, yeah no. So credit where credit is due. Good and, job. And that, that's really kind of amazing too, because according to the stats, that's about ten billion passengers that have flown uh, safely on the majors since the uh, uh, Airbus accident in Queens. Yep. Yes. Yes. U.S. airliners are that crowded. It's. <laughs> yeah, and I'm gonna be, no. I'm gonna be sitting with half a billion of them tomorrow morning. So uh, no, yeah, no constructive comment. Yeah, so uh, uh, moving on here. Um, so I try not to get uh, too excited about Oshkosh until after we get past Sun and Fun, um, just to sort of you know manage my emotions, so to speak. Um, but but this one just got announced, and it is kind of exciting. Um, um, some combination of EAA and the Navy have announced that the Blue Angels are coming to. Uh, is it official or is it just proposed? I didn't read. No, the it's story. official. It's, it's official. official. The Blue Angels are coming to Air Venture this summer. That'll be cool. I like the Blue Angels. I like the all. You know, all the jet teams are great. And obviously, I was blathering about Snowbirds last summer. Um, well, this this past week, the International Council of Air Shows, ICAS, as it's called, that's the trade show for air show pilots and air show acts to and promote air show operators. Yeah. Well, and air show operators come there to book to try to line up acts for their events and uh when the uh, blue angels released their 2017 show list at icas oshkosh was on it uh and they very quickly the folks up at oshkosh did a really quick 45 second promo video that just happens to include Blue Angels number seven taxiing by. I won't give you the spoiler on what it, what you see, but it's 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 cute. It's a fun watch. Oh, I'll look. I'll dig it out. I haven't seen that. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, if you haven't already marked your calendars, mark your calendars. But also mark your calendars for Sun and Fun. Um, we're, we're recording because it's still early December, and, and Sun and Fun's not till April this year. Um, it's been April for a few years now, and it kind of floats around in that March-April time frame. But it's April something or other. I don't know the dates off the top of my head. It's the first week. Is it? Yeah, okay. Good. Get it over with. See, it, it's it, – that's – I have a, I have this really kind of interesting, I don't know, uh, cogn- cogn- what do they call it? Cognitive dissonance thing about Sun and Fun because I always look forward to my trips down to Florida you know, during that time of year. But once it gets to be April, it's getting nice enough up here in New England that I'm not all that, you know – I don't need to go. It's like Sun and Fun ought to be in January. That would be great. Okay, we well, can... it's April 4 through 9 for yep. those that are counting the days. So uh, it, it follows a really intensely busy march for the uh, folks that traipse around the world and follow these events. You so. mentioned that. Yeah, there's a bunch of things going on in the weeks leading up to that, huh? Yeah, and as Sun and Fun's going on, Germany's having Errol Friedrichshafen at the same the same week. Is it really? Oh, that's interesting. That's yeah, yeah. It's uh, causing a lot of the vendors to have to juggle how they're going to split their staffs to uh, yeah. to uh, uh, fulfill their usual presence uh, uh, ambitions at both shows. Right, right. Yeah, and these other things, other than Sun and Fun, these other things are not so much for the average pilot, but uh, what was it you mentioned? The helicopter show is just prior to Sun and Fun and the the AEA show, the uh, Aircraft Electronics Association show, right? Am I correct about that? Yeah, the uh, HAI is a little earlier in March, followed by uh, a uh, avionics uh, uh, aircraft av- electronics association. Spit it out, David. Uh, followed by their show, uh, just about a week and a half ahead of Sun and Fun. So mm-hmm. yeah. uh, there's a lot of vendors that are going to be really hopping there for about four or five weeks. Yeah. I've never been to the HAI show. It sound, it always seemed to me that it would be an interesting show to go to, um, helicopters being, you know, different and, and you know, interesting it, to it, me it, anyways. It's a, it's a good show. It's, uh, I was hoping to uh, go because it's in Dallas this year, uh, but uh, good luck, Fortune. My dance card's gotten already too crowded to break away for March if I want to break away for Sun and Fun, so... Glad work's keeping you busy. That's good. Um, so, uh, but speaking of Sun and Fun, uh, or speaking of Lakeland, where Sun and Fun is held, and, and this is not strictly speaking a, a Sun and Fun re- story, but it, I, I'm hoping it'll relate somehow, some way. There was a story recently about how um, some sort of squadron of Hurricane Hunter aircraft are going to be based at Lakeland. Start. Have you seen this story? Yeah, I, I was just looking at that. Um, I think we were called. This was called to our attention by a listener, um, airport dude Air, in the airport forums, dude yep, in the forums. Yep, yep. And uh, he says, "Looks like uh, NOAA is relocating nine hurricane hunting aircraft, including two P three Orions, just up the road from Mister Burnside." He says, with respect. Yeah, there, there goes the neighborhood. I know. Next spring. Um, I haven't actually looked at the story. What does the story say here? Let's look at this here. Well, the relocation will be after May 1, the Uh-oh. city of Lakeland announced. Uh, so uh, they won't be uh, crowding the airspace. And April's a little early for hurricane season anyway. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the move means about 100 people and nine aircraft. And the two P three Orions, <laughs> Kermit and Miss Piggy, are, are, are part are part of the uh, fleet that's relocating there, and that's probably a pretty good location strategically for NOAA. 
I would think. Uh, now, is this a year-round yeah. base, or is this just some sort of field base during hurricane season? I can't answer that. Yeah. But uh be cool to see some of these there. Maybe even, yeah, So it doesn't happen until after, after Sun and Fun this year, but... Uh, uh, it would be nice for them to do a little selling of the NOAA, you know, to uh, uh, bring some of these airplanes to Sun and Fun so we can take a look. That'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. I know about the P-3 Orions. What else do they fly into Hurricanes well, these days? Don't they fly? According, uh, according um, to this release, NOAA is uh, leasing this space at, uh, at Lakeland for uh, five years. Oh, okay. So it yeah. uh, looks like this is a long-term relocation. Hmm. Uh, what else do they fly? That's a good good question. I'm not sure. Um, I'm sure the internet would tell us. Yeah. Uh, I think either Gulf Streams and or uh, C-130s. C-130s was the first one that came to my mind. Um, there's that guy who flies think, his T-33. I think Jeb's right on both of those. Right. And then there's that guy who flies his T, what was it? Not a T-33. It was a T T-34. T-28. It was a twenty-eight. Oh, into, a T twenty-eight, right? The, into thunderstorms or hurricanes or something like that. That was, but I'm. I think yeah, it's all armored up. Uh, yeah. He does thunderstorm stuff. Yeah, and he's and I don't. He's not part of NOAA, is he? He must be some sort of independent research thing. I, would uh, I believe that his work is for NOAA. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Uh, if not NOAA, uh, uh, who else could it be for? NASA. NASA I think or some NOAA. weather operation, I don't know, or some aviation operation. I, I don't know. We could, you know, it's funny. How we, it's too bad we don't have a device we could use to look this up. But we'll. we'll it is. It's it's truly truly a shame. We'll, looking at looking at Noah's um, uh, web page on this, um, um, looks like I was right. G, uh, Gulfstream uh, G four um, and uh, C one thirties in okay. addition to the in addition to the P threes. It would be interesting to learn more about that at Sun and Fun. Hint, hint to anybody who's listening. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Yeah. Yeah, that's one of my bucket list flights is uh, riding on a P3 during a uh, hurricane transit. Uh, you have uh, a death and, and wish. I'll I, I bring my own six sack. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Holy crap. Thanks to uh, Airport Dude for calling our attention to this in the forums. The forums, I, you know, and I'm not going to tell you that the forums are a happening place these days because it's definitely pretty quiet over there. But it's kind of picking up just a little bit. And uh, if, if you used to be active in the forums um, or always wondered about being active in the forums, um, you know, go and check it out. And, and, you know, it's kind of a, you know, you have to get involved to be involved. Or I don't know. What was it you said, Jeb? You have to, to have an empire, you have to build an empire. That's some, that's something like that. You know, yeah. it's to, to yeah. have some forums, we have to build some forums and uh so uh you know uh, go check out the uh the ucap forums and uh respond to something or better yet post a new thread and maybe we can get some conversation going there again it used to be a real happening place and it's kind of quiet these days but picking up um what else i I see i'm not I'm, i'm usually ready to make my little segue but i've lost track here what do we got here it's uh Oh, okay. See, I know this is why I didn't. I, I'm, I'm. This is a sad story, and you know, not wild about talking about it. But uh, we've lost another great in aviation. Um, this this episode, uh, John Glenn. Yeah, the, John Glenn. The last of the original Mercury Seven astronauts. Yeah. yeah. Um, a, a, a great long life, um, and uh, um, he passed away at age ninety-five uh, just recently, and, a couple days and, ago. And, for us. A, a remarkable public servant. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, and 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 courageous, heroic, perhaps a little crazy in terms of being willing to even climb into that thing, um, but uh, <coughs> but yeah. Well, uh, most Americans first 
got to know John Glenn when he was a uh, successful contestant on a 1950s game show. Right. Prior to the astronaut thing, he was just a, he was well known as a test pilot and an aviator back then. Yeah. Yeah. And he appeared in uniform, uh, a good Marine. And uh, I believe he won his segment. Uh, he, but then he went on to uh, test pilot status and test pilot fame. Uh, he set a record in 57 flying from L.A. to New York in three hours and 23 minutes on the first transcontinental flight to average supersonic speed. Oh, really? Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, and he, he was uh, part of a huge class of candidates, and one of the seven that was weeded out by the brand-new agency, National Aeronautics and Space Administration. And, uh, and it's interesting to the parameters. He had to be less than 40 years old, shorter than 5'11", qualified jet pilot, a minimum of 1,500 hours flying time, and a bachelor's degree in engineering. And that's where more than a few of the uh, chess pilots that really wanted into the program uh, fell by the wayside. Uh, some of them didn't have, they had college degrees, but not in engineering. Some of them didn't have, uh, college degrees at all that they met all the other flying requirements. So John joined Scott Carpenter, Gordon Cooper, Gus Grissom from my home state, Wally Sharaf, uh, who I've had a pleasure of meeting when he was still alive, Alan Shepard and Deke Slayton. And they were the face of the American space program, uh, Starting in uh, 1958, I guess it was. Was it that early? I guess maybe it was. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, w one of the things, for all the, the heroic great things you know, that uh, John Glenn did as part of the Mercury program, I, it always, I, it resonated for me when he managed to become uh, an astronaut again or grow into space again at age, what was it, 77, some 40 years 77, after. yeah. yeah. Um, where he, uh, um, uh, you know, and, and he was a U.S. senator at the time, so he probably, you know, pulled some strings or whatever um, and wrangled himself a, a crew position on the, uh, on the space shuttle. And, uh, but I, I just, I found that to be inspirational back at the, at the time. And, uh, um, you know, it's uh, it, it, quite a life. Uh, so, uh, you know, our, our, our thoughts go out to uh, John Glenn's family and, uh, and, uh, f and friends and community. Um, but, uh, well, it was my privilege to, uh, uh, spend time with him and interview him and talk to him a few times when he was a Senator. Get out of here. And, 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 uh, and, a, and a more gracious and humble human being you'd never find, let alone find in the halls of the U S Senate. <laughs> really? And if memory served when he flew back to Ohio, uh, on weekends and for, you know, uh, visiting his constituents, he was flying a Baron in those days. That's correct. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyways, yes, John Glenn. Jeb, you and I are going to have to put our heads together and see if we can uh -huh. find some aviation legend that David has not met at least once or twice. 
This just um, never ceases to amaze me. Do you think this is, maybe he's making it up. I had a friend who used to have a great memory about our childhood together, and uh, I was always impressed at his memory until it suddenly occurred to me that maybe he was just making these things. No, I'm sure David did meet these people. I know you did. Or- yeah, Orville was- and Wilbur. I'm Orville sure. and Wilbur. Well, you never know. Uh, what was yeah. it? Wilbur lived for quite a while there, or Orville did one or the other. I forget which. And. Uh, um, well, I, I knew a I knew a gentleman years ago who worked for National Geographic, who was friends with uh, Orville, I believe it was, and whose pilot's license was signed by one of them, uh, Louis Martin from National Geographic. Uh-huh. But I, I I can't claim I ever met the right, so I'm not quite old enough. <laughs> okay, if you say so. <laughs> I'm I'm just gonna. I know. No, I know. My, I know. My, my, my I know. Business. What are we doing here? We're in the, starting in to the reach interest the end of, of our, comments. Well, we're not reaching the end of our allotted time necessarily, but we are reaching we, 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 end of our list. the end of the list. Yeah, <laughs> see? So what's the story? Oh, slime. So this is also airport dude in the forums. Um, called our atten- we, we talked last episode about the, uh, the uh, um, uh, fire retardant accident that they had at San Jose. And uh, he posted in the forums some pictures of, a, of another fire retardant accident it, uh, at uh, where? looks like an air force a military base of some sort because it shows a bunch of black hawk military helicopters buried in foam it's uh does it say where this is i don't see it yeah i uh, I, know, I know there have been others uh, yeah. oh yeah but it's yet another they, example they, of how much foam there is in these systems it's pretty amazing actually there's a big ramp here that's been covered in foam on in these pictures this is uh yeah, it's 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 it, 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 it's a remarkable system, and uh, uh, just once, just once, I'd like to see one of these things discharged when there's an actual fire. Yeah, well, I, yeah. I, I have yet to see that. Yeah, uh, so here it is. Um, um, airport dude writes that this was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, these Blackhawks got slammed a few years ago in Tulsa. Would that be Tinker Air Force Base? I I don't know the answer to that, but. Uh, and uh, I think Tinker's farther west, but yeah, I responded in forums. I said, oh, "Okay, who's going to clean this up?" And airport dude then came back and said, "I bet they found plenty of one and two stripers to quote unquote volunteer." And uh, <laughs> yeah. what do you clean it up with? I don't know. <laughs> I got to figure there's a solvent that they can spray on it. I don't know, maybe not, but. Uh, you know, lots, of, I, 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 lots you know, of water, or just water. I'm thinking there's, there's not enough shop backs in, <laughs> in, in any given town to come up and suck all that mess yeah. up. That's what you do. You you go to Walmart, you buy them out of shop backs, and you get a whole bunch of you know one stripers who are just like you know have it strapped to their backs with a battery. And uh, sure, I'm sure that's how they did it. I'm oh sure, yeah, I'm sure that's exactly how they did it. What else do you want to talk about? Anything else going on? We could go jump. We could go straight to shoutouts and call this a day. But uh, it's, mm, it's a little early for that. Yeah. Um, what else is going on? Let's see. Um, that's a good question. Yeah. Not much. Yeah. Well, it, it, is wanna... there anything? Is there anything we missed that you didn't put on the list? Well, no. The the, the current list is one hundred percent there. Um, if you look at the list list uh, down low, um, the remnants of last episodes. 
um, remnants is there. Is there anything there you want to talk about? We're going to tease people here. Um, I'm going to see if I can get Jeb to talk about Dubai, uh, but that's going to be in the after show. If you're a, if you're a, uh, if you're a, a UCAP uh, patron through Patreon.com, uh, you may hear us talk about Jeb's adventure in Dubai. Uh, in the you're after such show. a slut. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but you know, maybe we'll talk about that later on. Uh, what do we got here? We got. Uh, you know, um, we're going to get Jim Jim G on the on the podcast. Uh, one of the uh, formerly formerly one of the bad boys of uncontrolled airspace, but now one of the uh, UCAP uh, air cav um, is uh, is. How, whoa, 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 whoa. Back up! How what, did these guys get the bad boy moniker? Where did that come from? They're the ones they with the help of our friend uh, David Higdon. Um, they created a pirate episode of the podcast a daily at oshkosh like two summers ago um and and if they had managed to figure out what the password was they were going to post it without even telling me all right fortunately i managed to keep that secure enough that they weren't able to do that but uh jim and uh and uh um larry overstreet and with some assistance from who will remain nameless here uh, <laughs> they created a, a, a totally pirate um, um, episode of uh, of the Uncontrolled Airspace Daily at, at Oshkosh and, and presented it to me. <laughs> and I didn't. It was actually pretty good. I hate to admit it. All right, it was kind of good. But, yeah, don't 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 tell anybody. Yeah. But at the time, because of their their uh, their uh, you know kind of secretive and 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 uh, you know wild west. I'm mixing my metaphors here. Um, you know ways. I, at the time, called them the bad boys of uncontrolled airspace. But then they they redeemed themselves by being such great um, uh, help. They they were all kidding aside, a huge help to us last summer uh, uh, when we had to kind of you know do it a different way for the first time. And so they became the uh, air cav along with uh, uh, Jeff Ward and uh, and Mike Morgan. Um, so. Uh, Anyway, anyway, Jim, uh, Jim's uh, we're gonna get Jim on the podcast, I, and I, I couldn't make it happen today. But um, Jim's gonna come on the podcast and tell us a story about uh, his emergency. He had an oil pressure emergency. Yeah, um, yeah. that'll look forward to that in some future episode. We'll put that in the regular episode, not in the not in the uh, in the after show. But uh, um, yeah, Jim, and it all, all came out well. I mean, he landed safely, and uh, the airplane's reusable. Um, but uh, but it, it was one of those moments, apparently. And uh, um, we're gonna get Jim to tell that story. What else is in here? You did anything here that jumps out at you? There's a lot of things that were left over from last episode. Yeah, there's there's one thing I'd, I'd um, bring some people's attention to. Um, it's a link to the Twitter machine, but it's um, a fairly short minute-and-a-half audio, two-minute audio from the FAA, uh, air traffic controller tapes. Um, uh, I'll just read the tagline here. Listen to the air traffic control audio recording of Jacksonville controller Dwayne McLean as he aided a pilot who was struggling to maintain spatial orientation and heavy cloud cover. Basically, this was a VFR-only pilot who uh, um, got caught on top or, or otherwise found himself uh, in cloud, and, and uh, uh, controller talked him through it and got him out, got him out the bottom uh, with with the wings still on, and, and uh, it's definitely uh, classified as a save. Isn't that great? It, I, I yeah, haven't heard it, that it, story. It very, but, yeah, very interesting audio, actually. But you hear those stories from time to time. I've always said, you know, and so, you know, 
we have this interesting relationship with the FAA as pilots, and I think sometimes they do things that are a bit of a head-scratcher. Um, but it, it's always been my observation, and tell me if you think this makes any sense to you, but um, it, as far as the FAA is concerned, the closer the FAA person is to regular pilots, the better they are. They're just outstanding. The controllers, you can just, you know, that's a great example you just gave, but it's not an unusual example. You hear these things no, all not. the time about controllers who just do amazing things to help out pilots in distress or simply pilots that are struggling. And uh, um, and I've come across a lot of FISDO people who are are great and, mm-hmm. and very mm-hmm. very constructive and and supportive, you know. And uh, the FAA is a, is a very interesting uh, um, you know agency, um, not without its faults, but with a lot of great great people who do great. Yeah, I, I, I would echo that. I mean, there, there's clearly uh, the agency does have its has had its problems over the past, and 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 I'm sure will continue to have them in the future. As far as uh, let's just call them pinheads. Uh, yeah, uh, our, our concern. True. Yeah, our concern. But uh, <clears throat> there's also, a, you know, a, there's always been a cadre of of uh, people at the FISDO level, even at the headquarters level, uh, who are pilots and uh, uh, you know, kind of been there, done that, and um, um, bend over backwards to help out other pilots uh, from their positions at, at the FAA, and and that's a good thing. I've got to third all of that. I mean. Uh, my uh, time as a reporter in D.C. Uh, allowed me to get to know, uh, well, even before going to D.C., I got to know personally uh, some FAA staffers that were working on uh, the creation of Part 103 for the ultralight community. And when the FAA announced that they were forming a team to tackle this issue, uh, you know, the immediate reaction in the community was dread and gloom and, you know, fear and loathing. And when we started dealing with the guys in person, we found out they were on our side, which is why they had that job. They had volunteered. Yeah. yeah. And they knocked themselves out to push back uh, against uh, people in the agency that were not so open to sharing the sky with unlicensed uh, aviators flying uncertified aircraft. Uh, and a couple of these guys are still uh, among my best friends. Mm-hmm. Working in D.C., I got to know a bunch of them. And I'll be honest, where most of the problems we've dealt with in general aviation it, it came from in the FAA were from new hires from the outside who were just, you know, they reminded me of school teachers during the Vietnam era. They wanted that job because it came with a deferment. And some of of these guys wanted jobs in in the Fed because of the great benefits and the good retirement. And they didn't really care where they landed. But once they landed there in the FAA, they felt like they had to justify their existence by doing something, even if it was wrong. And the higher up the food chain those folks landed, the more difficult they tended to make things Mm -hmm. for the folks in the FAA who actually knew Whiskey Tango Foxtrot was going on. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, several of those guys I got to know during my time in D.C. I never go back without having lunch or dinner or a beer with some of these guys. Uh, and I'll take it one step farther. Even when you have a FUBAR where you get called before a safety counselor or have to deal with the FAA on a potential enforcement action, 
uh, most of the guys I've dealt with, and I've only had to do this once, but I had to deal with three different FAA guys through the process. They were interested in making sure that I didn't do it again, that I checked out fine, and they cut me loose knowing that nobody wants to repeat that experience. Right. And, uh, you know, somebody said, oh, you're going to get ramp checked now every time they see one of you. I saw those guys frequently on the ramp and never once got ramp checked because they knew who the hell I was. Yeah. 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 That's a big key, isn't it? You know, knowing these people and not being strangers is is way better than not. You know, that's one of the things that the commemorative Air Force wing here in Wichita, the EAA chapter in Wichita, uh, they regularly help make personal connections between FAA staff, whether it's in the uh, uh, tower at uh, Eisenhower Airport or in the FISDO or the safety counselor by arranging events where we get to interact and meet one another or inviting them to meetings so that they can talk to the membership and get to know some of us and we can get to know them. And that's really important. Uh, because most of them really are good people who want to see us succeed safely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the, the other thing going on, <clears throat> excuse me, the other thing going on here also is, uh, um, yeah, FAA is is not omniscient, it's not omnipotent either. But um, when it, at the local or federal levels, uh, uh, decides it wants to try to do something, um and that something is not compatible with uh, your operation or or is not what you desire, um, you know, politely, professionally, reasonably express yourself because they may not know the problem that they're creating. And, and just as, as Dave points out in his experience and certainly in my experience, um, they're not uh, safety-wired, as I, as I might say, into the position of doing stuff just because they want to do it for the most part. Mm-hmm. Um, explain to them uh, the rationale. Explain to them the reasoning behind your concerns. And I, I've sat in a lot of different meetings on these various topics uh, at, the, at the very highest levels in the FIA and at the very lowest. And uh, uh, generally speaking, uh, those people want to try to make it right. They do want to do it right. And uh uh, you just need to express yourself and point out to them why X, Y, or Z is a bad idea. Yeah. One one of my friends from uh, that worked, he's since retired, but worked at uh, 800 Independence uh, in D.C., the FAA headquarters. And he worked at different management levels, and he worked for NTSB for a while. And, and he had a, a fairly firm philosophy about his job. He went to work in the mornings looking for what he could do to improve general aviation, what he could do to help pilots. But his first rule of thumb was similar to what doctors swear to do when they take the Hippocratic Oath. First, do no harm. Right. He didn't want to do anything that was going to be an imposition, going to roll things back, even in that broad catch-all name of safety. Oh, we're doing this in the name of safety. Well, how does it make things safer? That was always his first question. And if the person proposing this didn't have an immediate answer of why what they wanted to do would make things safer or easier or more efficient, 
that he immediately pushed them back and said, come back when you can answer that question. Yeah, exactly. And it's amazing how many cockamamie proposals came to an end right at that point. Yeah. And then sometimes they came back and they really did have an idea of how to do something safer, how to improve something or make it uh, easier on pilots. And that's when he work with them and get the proposal in shape and they'd start to move it up the chain. But none of this stuff happens quickly or easily. That's the other thing. Uh, uh, the FAA still to this day is stuck with being a more proactive agency, I mean a more reactive agency than it would like, than a lot of the people would like. But proactive is really hard to sell sometimes. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. So, so one other, one other, you know, yeah, in that ahead. general vein, just kind of a, a heads up, point out, reminder, whatever you want to call it. Um, we're starting to close in on the ostensible six-month deadline for medical F- reform. Yeah. For medical reform that the FAA was uh, was told to uh, to uh, meet um, back in uh, mid July, as I recall. Uh, so mid-January will be the, uh, <clears throat> the at least the first deadline uh, the FAA is, uh, is supposed to meet relative to coming up with regulations implementing the uh, the medical reform legislation passed last summer. Which uh, was signed into law on July 15th. Yep, yep. Um, technically, they have a full year um, before um, the, that same legislation uh, would mandate that um, the the provisions go into effect anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, they, they have six months to put together the regulations, um, and uh, that's coming up is the punchline. We got we got about a month, uh, uh, probably half a month or so before this gets after this hits the streets. Wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, but uh, we got about a we got about a month before uh, uh, that supposedly uh, is is going to be out there. So that's something to look forward to. Yeah. And just a heads up, that's going to be in the form of a notice of proposed rulemaking that has multiple parts uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. impacting multiple FARs. So pay attention to it when it comes up. Read it when it comes up. And as Jeb so correctly put it if you find something that seems sideways with the intent of the regulation politely clearly reflect your opinion yeah yeah jane you ignorant slut (laughs) uh it's all it's all a mystery to me what was it you said earlier i don't know a mystery a mystery uh i am gonna now now i am gonna say now i am gonna say shout outs uh, there's one shout-out on the list. I'm going to let you guys collect your thoughts while I do the one shout-out that's on the list here. Uh, and that is a shout-out to our good friend uh, Rod Rakick and company at uh, OpenAirplane.com. Um, Open Airplane is just a, a, a remarkable program that Rod and company uh, began putting together a few years ago and uh, through no small uh, exertion of effort managed to pull off. Open Airplane, if you're not familiar, is a program where you can get a single uh, checkout for a wide variety of different, well, for, there are a wide variety of airplanes available. You can get checkouts for the appropriate airplane, and then um, with that air, that checkout in hand, uh, rent uh, airplanes from uh, uh, FBOs all over America without having to get individual checkouts everywhere you go. Um, the reason I mention them today is that they just announced they have uh, just passed a threshold with their 100th uh, FBO that is in the, part of their system now. Woohoo! Uh, 
100 FBOs a, around America, deal. Um, maybe even deal. North America. I'm not sure if it goes out into Canada. I, I bet it doesn't go into Canada. Um, but I'm pretty sure they go to Hawaii. Um, and I don't know about Alaska, but uh, there's a map here. I but anyways, um, they've just passed 100, and uh, it's a terrific program. And, uh, you, know, it's, um, I, I, you know, even if you're not a regular renter, I bet it makes you safer. Um, it's, it's, it's a very, very uh, useful checkout, and uh, um, it's a great program. That's all. I just wanted to say congratulations to, uh, to Rod and company for uh, this, reaching this milestone. Um, if you're at all interested, you should go check out openairplane.com, and you can get all the information there. What else? Yep. You guys got any shout-outs? No? Not okay. really. You don't have to. You don't have to. I just need but you need I need to stretch long enough to find my little script here so that I can oh, say thank you to well, everybody. Stretch, 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 stretch. All right. Stretch. Well that's it then. Um we're gonna Dave and I are gonna go back to huddling in a warm corner and, and you know, wrapping that that comforter around our shoulders and I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna go get in the pool and lay in the sun for a while. <laughs> Dave Higdon uh, is an aviation photographer, an aviation journalist, and the U.S. editor for London's Av Buyer magazine. David, I know you've been pretty busy lately. Can you think of something you've been working on that uh, that you want to tell us about? Well, I was just looking at a contents page of uh, Av Buyer uh, to see what I've got in there. And, uh, well, my last international business aviation operation story is in this month's Av Buyer. Uh, looks at flying in the uh, region of the uh, South Pacific known as Oceania, mm-hmm. which includes uh, New Zealand among the uh, territories down there, and uh, talks about three different states. And for the record, there's about 23 independent states, most of them little small islands that uh, populate uh, <laughs> the uh, the Oceania territory. So. Mm-hmm. We we focused on the three biggest ones in there, and I got a couple yep. of stories in the uh, latest uh, avionics news. So we we're not lacking for uh, not lacking for exposure. Keeping busy. Yep. You had a chance to spend any time on the airplane? No. Yeah, it's cold. It's too cold to go and hang out in the in in your in your storage. Oh, unit. I've, I've, I've got hanger. a I've got a I've got a good heater. I've got two of them actually. One electric, one uh, propane. All right, man. I was trying uh, to give you an excuse, but you're not you're not you're not fighting, huh? No, it's been uh, it's been work. Well, two weeks of this month, I was after I got back from uh, it, I'm sorry, two weeks in November after I got back from NBAA, I was pretty much non-functional with some kind of infection, and uh, that really chewed up uh, a lot of work to kind of put me behind. Yeah. But by the time I hit Monday, I will be caught up and hoping to spend uh, most of Wednesday in the shop uh, testing out a new tool that uh, my buddy Tom and I invented to help place the ribs in the uh, flaps. Ah, very cool. Very cool. Where can people find out about your work on the Internet and you in general? Uh, net, uh, avbuyer.com, uh, on the Twitter machine, I'm real Higdon. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and, uh, uh, I think that covers most that, of it. That'll do it. That'll do it. Yeah. And, uh, suffering through the cold of, uh, of, uh, central, South Central Florida is uh, <laughs> uh, the good friend here, Jim Burnside. <laughs> Jeb's a freelance aviation writer uh, and editor, big-time smartass, and uh, also currently serving as the editor-in-chief of Aviation Safety Magazine. What's going on, Jeb? What are you working on? 
I'm working on uh, creating a new magazine called Smartass. Um, <laughs> it's going to be a big hit. It's, <laughs> it's, it's you know kind of a it's a it's a very narrow market, but uh, um, uh, um, anyway. Yeah, but if you if you want an empire, you got to build an empire. So. Uh. Right. That's exactly right. Um, what was your question? My question was, uh, what are you working on? You're working on, uh, I would imagine you're either starting or just finishing an issue of Aviation Safety Magazine. Finished an issue uh, a week or so ago. Um, happy to report. Uh, came out very nicely. Uh, uh, some good, good contributors. Um, and uh, looking I keep to, looking for to, your thing in... Uh, in the GA news, that's always fun. And we we skipped a month. I just didn't I was have wondering the, if maybe you yeah, might have skipped a month. Yeah, we yeah, we we skipped a month, and I just didn't have the wherewithal to to crank out uh, uh, something else. But that's on my agenda for the coming week. Uh-huh. Uh, so look for me on GA news one more time, and uh, you know, in, in the future here, um, one more time, uh, we'll, we'll restart that uh, that cycle again. Let's put yeah, it that way. Cool. And uh, uh, so there's that. There's uh, uh, um, AEA's Avionics News Magazine. Yep. Um, and uh, who knows where else I might pop up. I know, I know. Yeah. And so uh, tell me where people can find you on the internet. Um, Burnside J on the Twitter machine. Yep. Uh, Magazine.com. Yep. Uh, AEA.net and generalaviationnews.com. There you go. There you go. And I'm Jack Hodgson. I'm a private pilot, a freelance writer, and a new media producer. You can follow me at Twitter, where I am Jack Hodgson. Uh, you can learn more about me than you ever really wanted to know at jackhodgson.com and aroundthefield.net. A uh, big thanks to uh, Jeff Ward for all his help in the show notes uh, and in the forums, uh, he, uh, one of the uh, members of the AirCav. Uh, big thanks to Mike Morgan, to Royce Earl, Jim Goldman, and to the many other listeners who have created the UCAP Disclaimer Clips. Please support UCAP by making a repeating per-episode donation of any size via the online service Patreon. Get all the details about this at patreon.com slash uncontrolled airspace. And while you're at it, go into iTunes and give us a review, check some stars, give us some thumbs-ups. I forget these days how they do that. But uh, but giving us, uh, you're, you know, expressing yourself about UCAP in iTunes is very, very helpful. It helps us get the word out about the podcast. Uh, please follow us on Twitter. Uh, the uh, uh, podcast itself has a Twitter uh, address called uh, Class G Airspace. That's uh, the word class, the letter G, and the word airspace, all one word. You never know what might turn up there. Um, as a matter of fact, we're going to talk about that in the post show. Um, you can also listen to UCAP in the free section of Sporty's Pilot Shop's mobile app, Takeoff, along with other podcasts and special Sporty's content. Uh, get your UCAP hats, shirts, and other cool gear at the UCAP Swag Shop. That's uh, Find that through uncontrolledairspace.com slash store. And don't forget to check out the rest of the UCAP website, 10 years worth of UCAP show notes and episode downloads. And last but not least, chat with us directly at, and with many of your fellow listeners in the Uncontrolled Airspace forums. All of that is at uncontrolledairspace.com. David, was there something, some piece of advice you had for us? Old age is a wonderful thing if you can get there. So if you want to get there, go fly because time spent flying is not subtracted from your lifespan. Jeb and I are proof. And that's, <laughs> and that's enough talking. Let's go flying. Stay warm, guys. Uh,